If you were a flea and could jump, if you could jump in proportion to your size to a flea, you could jump over those three large buildings. This is a YouTube video of my friend Carl Priest. On his blog, he calls himself the insect man. There's an insect called a frog hopper that can jump higher than a flea. It would be equal to a man jumping over a 70-story skyscraper. The video shows Carl at a church in Boise, Idaho. Dragonflies. He's sharing fascinating facts about insects with kids. A scientist says they're a marvel of engineering. You don't get engineering out of a, of a brainless thing called evolution. Oh, and did I mention this? The Charleston Gazette calls Carl Priest West Virginia's best-known enemy to evolution. Carl says that's not true. He says he's one of evolution's top ten enemies in the world. I'm Trey Kay, and this is Us and Them from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. It's the podcast where we tell stories from America's cultural divides. Today we hear from two guys who have strong opinions about science. Strong enough that they put their money where their mouths are. For years, my friend Carl Priest has been a critic of the teaching of evolution. But evolution is just the tip of the iceberg. Carl's got a beef with public schools in general. He's the volunteer state coordinator in West Virginia for an organization called Exodus Mandate. Exodus Mandate is a, a Christian ministry that encourages Christians to uh, homeschool, and if they can't homeschool, to uh, go to a biblically sound Christian school. Also, I'm uh, on the leadership team of a sister group called the Operation Jericho Project. Operation Jericho is more aggressive. We uh, actively speak to pastors and churches, and we just tell them if, if, if they're not preaching the message to rescue children, uh, they're wrong. Uh, they're hurting their church and especially their children. I met Carl several years ago when I was doing research for a historical documentary about a fight over school curriculum in West Virginia. Back in 1974, Carl was a public school teacher in Kanawha County. He fought against the multicultural textbooks that that county school board was considering at the time. That protest was a seminal event in his life, and ever since then, he's been an advocate for Christian-based education for young people. I mean, it's obvious. It the children are the next uh, generation, and you train them the, the way you want them trained, and you'll have a society the way you want it. And right now, we're having a society the way liberals want it. Carl's retired from teaching now, and he's made shepherding Christian kids out of public schools into kind of a ministry. Yeah, that's exactly right. I look at it as a Christian ministry, but also uh, as a patriot. America was based upon Christian values. Early settlers had a, a tolerance for other religions, and that's why uh, it works so well. But the basis of the country are biblical values, and we've lost them. And I think e e even liberals can see, if they, if they don't, they're willingly blind what a mess this country's in. 
Carl has a mission to set America's children onto a godly course. And one way to do that is to demonstrate that the Bible's account of the origin of life is reliable. He uses his insect fascination to help convey this message to young people. I began to see how they tied into creation, creation science. So it just boomed from, from that point on. I, my motto is insects bug evolutionism. In my presentation, even though it's in churches and I, and I insert scripture and, and spiritual things, it's still basically science. I read somewhere that you demonstrated to your students that mathematics proves evolution is nonsense. Without making it too complicated, can you walk me through that? Uh, it doesn't have to get complicated. Seventh graders can understand it. I just show them the mathematics. I, I let them bring in probabilities of, of winning the lottery. And then I got quotes from scientists about the probability of a single cell or a part of a single cell uh, coming about by accident. It was, so, it was so far beyond the probability of winning the lottery that kids saw. This is impossible. Another way the insect man likes to bug evolutionists is this thing called the Life Science Prize Challenge. The Life Science Prize Challenge is Dr. Mastropilo puts up $10,000 in escrow. He's talking about Dr. Joseph Mastropalo, a kinesiologist and physicist. Mastropalo advocates for creation science and is willing to debate any and all evolutionists. His opponent, whether he wants to be called an evolutionist or not, puts up $10,000. They go before a judge. The evidence has to be valid, objective, reliable, and calibrated. That's science. It has nothing to do with the Bible. It has to do with evidence. I spoke with Dr. Master Palo, and he believes that a courthouse is the proper place to evaluate evidence for or against evolution. Carl Priest says his champion is willing to stand before any judge who's available at the time. And the judge will decide which party prevails. In other words, if they have more evidence for evolution than he has evidence for devolution or the opposite of evolution, which is real science, they would win the $10,000. Carl's part in this enterprise is to serve as the doctor's Don King. He tries to set up the fights. He writes letters to prominent evolution scientists like Dr. Richard Dawkins to issue the challenge. Usually, scientists don't respond. Carl posts the correspondence on his blog as a way to publicly goad these scientists into a debate. If a scientist refuses or doesn't answer the challenge, Carl adds their name to a list of debate dodgers. So far, Carl hasn't been able to get an opponent to step into the ring and go a few rounds with his anti-evolution prize fighter. But he says the point is to attract attention. I'm wanting to reach the people who haven't made a decision. Lurkers. They won't make comments, but they'll read them, and they'll, and they'll think, and they'll go check. Uh, liberals, they still have some hope. When a liberal gets converted to either Christianity or conservatism, they are the best evangelists for, for either subject. So there's hope for liberals. Do you have a hope that you can once and for all disprove evolution and that people will say, aha, he did it, and, and everybody will fall in line? Evolution's disproved. I think your question is, 
basically will everybody believe it? And uh, the answer is no to that because it, it's not a head thing. It's a heart issue. If some evolutionist were to take the life science challenge and they were to prevail and were to prove that evolution was, was factual, was not a lie, as you believe it to be, where would you be at that point? I wouldn't be disappointed. I'd just be surprised. Uh, but it still would be God had to do it. Evolution cannot occur on its own. It would take uh, an intelligent being to get it going. I've known about Carl's put-up-or-shut-up challenge for years. Then one day last fall, I was reading Slate.com and noticed a different challenge from, from this guy. I'm Dr. Christopher Keating. I'm a physicist, and I study climate change. Dr. Keating was fed up with people who say there's no scientific evidence that humans are causing climate change. Keating found their arguments specious, so he decided to make a challenge of his own. He'd pay $30,000 to any climate science skeptic who could present an argument that he couldn't dismantle. When I first became aware of climate change back in the early 80s, I actually didn't believe in uh, man-made climate change. As I became more familiar with the science, I reached the conclusion that, in fact, it is real. The thing that made me feel skeptical at first was the idea that we were significant enough to cause such an enormous change in our environment. That just seemed to me to be uh, a reach at the time. So what persuaded Keating that humans have a negative impact on the environment? He says it was in the early 80s when he was in a philosophy course. And Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, was required reading. The book came out in 1962 and spurred a reversal of the nation's thinking about pesticides. Keating says it made him aware of the worldwide effects of DDT. That helped him understand how human activity can change the worldwide environment. Seeing how much effect DDT had on the environment, we are in fact able to change the environment ourselves. So it seems as though over the years, you seem to be bothered by people who um, argue otherwise. Can you tell me about that? I don't object to people that don't believe in it. That's their right. But I do have a particular problem with what I call the denier industry, actively working to undermine the science and deceive the public. We see that the Koch brothers are heavily involved in funding this. And we also see that the coal industry is, is very strongly supporting it. So in your way to address what you refer to as deceit, you have made a challenge, a $30,000 global warming skeptic challenge. Can you tell me what, what is that challenge? Well, what I made was a $10,000 challenge. And uh, two of the guys on the Young Turks TV show pitched in $10,000 each and made it $30,000. It was in response, actually, to a skeptic challenge. I think it was in 2007. It was the JunkScience.com website. And he said if you could go and prove that global warming is real, he would award $500,000. He came back and he said no one won, and he never gave any reason why. I established my challenge in response to that. Keating published a book called Undeniable, Dialogues on Global Warming. It came out in the spring of 2014. 
And his global warming skeptic challenge was mentioned in the promotional material. All of a sudden, it went viral. I was getting thousands of comments, and I think I got close to 100 submissions. The, the one requirement I had was that it had to follow the scientific method. And that was to prevent people from coming and saying, well, God said so, those kinds of arguments. So they had to prove via the scientific method that global warming was not real. It did not have to be original work. And I responded to every single one of these submissions and showed why it was not a valid submission. And who adjudicates their, their argument? It was my money, so I was the judge. But, but you offer a written explanation. Do I have that right? For every single submission. And how, how did they do? Uh, the best ones were really bad, and they went downhill from there. Some were unbelievably bad. Well, give me an idea of something that would be unbelievably bad. Well, there was one. Um, I remember they submitted a George Carlin comedy routine. The planet is doing great. It's been here four and a half billion years. Did you ever think about the arithmetic? planet has been here four and a half billion years. We've been here, what, 100,000? Maybe 200,000? And we've only been engaged in heavy industry for a little over 200 years. 200 years versus four and a half billion. And we have the conceit to think that somehow we're a threat? That somehow we're going to put in jeopardy this beautiful little blue-green ball that's just a-floating around the sun? The planet has been through a lot worse than us. My response to it was, George Carlin was a funny guy, and I liked his comedy, but he's not a climate scientist. He didn't even say climate change wasn't real. His, his routine was, we're all going to die anyway, so who cares? But you said that basically most of them were bad. I mean, there, you're, you're telling me that there wasn't one compelling argument, one, one that made you think, oh, gosh, I'm going to have to pull my checkbook out. Let me put it to you this way. Basically, this goes back about 150 years. So there's millions of man hours involved to get us to the point that we are right now. The community of climate scientists are not suddenly going to go and slap themselves in the forehead and go, God, we never even thought about that. So I was very, very skeptical that anyone would be able to produce any kind of science that shows that it is not valid. And, and what about the argument of the fluctuations, that where there's warming periods and cooling periods, and, and we're just, we just happen to be in a warming period right now, but that's going to naturally change? That is one of the most common arguments. What they're saying is, we're in a warming period. Warming periods in the past were natural, therefore, the warming period today is natural. But it's, it is a false argument. Nowhere has anyone shown that what we are in now is a naturally occurring warming cycle. In fact, when we go and look at the naturally occurring cycles, we are actually in a naturally occurring cooling cycle right now, which is a very scary thought. What that means is that if this cooling cycle stops and turns into a naturally occurring warming cycle, then we have man-made global warming on top of a naturally occurring warming cycle, and things are going to get really warm. While I was speaking with Dr. Keating, I was in a studio at West Virginia Public Broadcasting while he was at his home in Central Texas. I was working on a story about two very different people promoting very different put-up or shut-up science challenges. And I wondered what they might think of each other's ideas. So I asked Carl Priest to come into the studio and sit in on my discussion with Dr. Keating. Christopher Keating, this is Carl Priest. Carl Priest, Christopher Keating. Dr. Keating, good to uh, meet you over the airways. 
And as I listen to the interview, I'm uh, very impressed. I, I think you're a, a reasonable man. Well, thank you. We do have apples and oranges here. You are the scientist, and I'm just a layman. So I wanted to clarify that matter with you. Okay, thank you. It was fascinating the uh, the way you described some of the responses to your challenge. Uh, we we found similar things with ours. Uh, we've taken a lot of verbal abuse, uh, threats of a lawsuit, and I even had a West Virginia state trooper show up at my door one time due, a, due to a complaint from uh, someone that we challenged. I haven't had a, a trooper show up at my front door, and uh, it, on behalf of the scientific community, I I want to apologize to you about that. You have a right to go out here and, and say what you believe. And if we disagree with you, that's our right. But no one has a right to go and start threatening each other and abusing each other over these issues. Hey, I, th- I appreciate you saying that. Uh, and I, I found very little to disagree uh, with as Trey interviewed you uh, regarding uh, reasonable conversations and uh as you said, some of your family and, and best friends disagree with you. That's that's the same way with me. Now, I, I'm, I, I'm a Christian, and, and some uh, good brothers in Christ disagree with me. Some of my best friends who have supported me on uh, evolution have been pastors and priests. I've had some some really great conversations on the subject with uh, with men of the cloth. I know many scientists who are devoutly religious. Science and and religion are not necessarily in opposition to each other. They are not exclusive. There will be peace in the valley for me someday. There will be peace in the valley. As I listen to this, I thought I was experiencing an us-and-them miracle. I mean, on the internet or on my Facebook page, I've seen people on either side of the climate or evolution debate just tear into each other in the most vicious way. But here, liberal Dr. Keating was speaking respectfully to conservative Karl Priest, and vice versa. Was this peace in the valley? The lion lying down with the lamb? Then the conversation began to take a turn. I don't equate creationism with Christianity at all. In fact, I I think it is anti-Christianity. If you go and look and see what uh, the Bible says and compare it to what creationists are saying, in my opinion, they are not in sync at all. They're 100% opposed. I don't feel that uh, attacking creationism is an attack on Christianity. And I don't want to attack anyone's religious beliefs at all, For no matter what that religious belief is. I'm not going to debate you on the, on whether or not Christianity and creationism go together, but Dr. Keating, uh, I'd like to hear your best evidence of evolution. Well, I can give you some, I'd give you something real quick. You get a, a flu vaccination every year. Yeah, yeah, I do. Now, go ahead. Flu vaccination is proof positive of evolution. Uh, once you get a, a flu vaccination, you're immune to that flu forever. The reason you have to get a new flu vaccination every year is because the flu has has mutated into a, a new virus. And so now you have to get immune to that new virus. And so, yeah, there we have evolution going on right there. 
very rapidly, no, in no, fact. No, no, no that's, that's not correct, Dr. Keating. You started with a virus. You got a virus when, you, when it mutates. It's just like you have a, a, a poodle and a, and a German shepherd. They're still dogs. There's a wide designed ability to, uh, to have variation. But you're never going to have a dog change to a cat. You're never going to have a virus change to a parmesium or, or whatever it might be. Over a long period of time, given enough time, uh, you're not going to have a dog turn into a cat, but you'll have one line of life that will mutate into a completely different line of life. And that that is documented so extremely well that uh, it, it's difficult to debate that issue at all. Oh, oh that isn't documented, Dr. Keating. It's, uh, when you say a, a long period of time, you're getting into a faith uh, argument rather than scientific. Provide your best evidence for evolution was my question, and you said virus mutation. That's right. And I, I dispute that. You're wrong, but you're, you're allowed to go and, and, uh, and dispute it. But you're wrong, and I just proved you're wrong because a virus is a virus. Is that a true statement? And an animal is still an animal. A poodle, a poodle is a dog. A poodle is a dog, and a dog will always be a dog, always has been, and that's science. That's observational science. And that is, that is your false argument. That's your false argument again. Just because the dog will always be a dog doesn't mean the dog's offspring will be a dog. What, what do you think a dog will be a, a million years from now? Who knows? What was a dog 10,000 years prior to now? 10,000 years ago, they were slightly different. And, you know, we can tell that because we can find fossil bones, we can get their DNA out, and we can compare the DNA, the evidence of the structure of their, uh, their bones, and we can see that they were different. And what was the ancestor of a dog? That's one of the things we don't really know. Dogs are basically wolves. Dogs came from wolves at some time, but that's not conclusive. That's you know that's not a closed book. So you don't know, and you don't have any fossil evidence of a, of a dog coming from another creature. Now, now wait a minute. Let's be clear. I am not an evolutionary biologist. You know, I'm a physicist, and I study climate change, and so I am not some world-leading expert on evolution. You can't ever go and say, oh. Creationism is real because Chris Keating says this about evolution. Once again, that is a total 100% false argument. Well, I, I, so what you've, done, I, what you've done in this discussion is you've produced false argument after false argument after false argument. I'll, I'll say the same thing right back at you respectfully, Dr. Keating. You have false arguments. You have imagination. You have millions of years. You're, you're speaking on faith, and now you're dodging to an expert. Well, bring on your expert. Let him give his best evidence. The evidence is out there. I read these books. I see the shows on TV. It's there. So you're, it's you're, there for anyone to go and see. You're taking their, you're taking their statements by faith. No. I'm taking the science of the scientific community, and there is no faith in scientific method. Uh, well, I guess I could ask both of you. Carl, do you think that you could persuade Dr. Keating? I think he's a reasonable man, and he's not hopeless. I, I need to talk to him, uh, talk to him longer. The the issue is not a head issue; it's a heart issue, and and I don't know if Dr. Keating's heart is hardened or not. And Dr. Keating, do you think that you could uh, persuade Carl to uh, believe that creation science is not uh, reliable? 
No, he's rejected science, and it is a head issue. That is absolutely uh, has, wrong. I have not rejected science. It has nothing science. to do. I have not rejected science, and don't well, yeah. you say that. That is a bald-faced lie. I, I will say it because you've rejected it in this very conversation. <laughs> I, I think you have rejected science because all you could bring up is viruses, and then you dodge to, uh, to somebody no. else who's a no. biologist. No, we're, you, you're rejecting we're in science a, because of a, your need, your we're need in a forum. to have evolution. We are in a forum, and uh, you asked me to provide an argument, and I did. Now, if you wanted to go into a course, you know, a semester-long dis discussion on this, there's all sorts of stuff I can produce. But that's this is not the appropriate forum for this. This is not some big debate session or anything like that but but uh, but i guess what I, I guess where where i am with this is um i've i've known carl for a while he's quite adamant this is an issue that, that that he cares a great deal about and that he feels that this is a message that needs to go out and it needs to be challenged and yet on the same in the same time i i read uh you know about your challenge and and it seems as though both of you are really trying to connect. Carl wants uh, a scientist to basically take his and Dr. Master Paolo's um, arguments seriously. And I think that you, on the other hand, um, have either, A, gotten tired of other scientists who you believe are distorting the facts of climate science, or just laymen who you feel are producing misinformation. And I'm just, I guess I'm interested in why it is that both of you have kind of chosen this forum to present your views. If you have enough people on both sides of the argument, someone's going to do it. And uh, we happen to be the ones in our respective uh, domains that chose this, this venue. But you don't think that you're going to persuade um, somebody like Carl. And I don't think that Carl's going to persuade somebody like you, although he says that you're, he, he says that it doesn't seem like your heart is hard, although maybe he's changed his mind. Well, if, he, if he'll produce science that shows evolution is not correct, then I would be very interested to see it. Unfortunately, evolution is probably the single most well-proven theory in all of science. Yeah, that's a faith statement. And uh, Dr. Keating, you, you, that's no, no faith. You There's no fa faith in that. You that's not faith. Science is not faith. You don't evolution believe faith, in gravity. Not science. Now, see, you bring you 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 equate evolution with science, and it isn't. It is it science. Is not. It is a it rigorous is science. It and is you a, told me if I went to a semester show, course. I'm sorry. It doesn't. It doesn't matter how many point, times Dr. you Keating, say that. Can I finish my is, point? Evolution is still a science. You said if I went to a semester course, I would be uh, presented with evidence for evolution. Well, I'll tell you what, after this call, why don't you send me your best proof? Why don't you talk to your colleagues who are true believers in evolution, have them send me their best proof. And I guarantee you it'll just be no. more virus no. mutations. I, I will tell you the same thing I say to, to the climate change deniers. I am not here to do your homework. The science is out there. You're dodging. The evidence is out there. You're the dodging. proof is out there, and You're it is dodging. easily ex it is easily accessible for anyone You're who is dodging. willing to do their homework. You're I am dodging. not dodging. I can what I'm doing is I'm not letting you take over my life. You're dodging.
I guess I was hoping for an us and them miracle with left and right, religious and secular coming together. But it just seemed to devolve into the same place it usually goes with each side taking jabs at the other. Christopher Keating and Carl Priest both say they don't really expect their put-up or shut-up challenges to win any converts. They both concede that their challenge is a little bit of showmanship, meant to capture the attention of undecided people listening on the margins of the debate. So I'm wondering, what about you? Do you find these guys persuasive? If you're undecided about evolution or whether humans affect the climate, did either of these guys convince you? probably you already had a pretty set opinion on evolution or climate science. If you did, how did you form your beliefs? Would you let us know more about this on our Facebook page? I'm not asking you to make an argument for or against evolution, and I'm not asking for evidence or arguments about what is causing climate change. What I'm curious about is how you know what you know. Who or what is your authority? And and why do you believe that authority? I can't wait to hear what you think. So please post a comment or send me a message at the Us and Them Facebook page. We've gotten a lot of responses to our episode in Dixieland, I'll Take My Stand. That show is about people's feelings about two icons of the Old South, the Confederate battle flag and the song Dixie. It made me remember a thing that I had learned about in my personal uh, family history. I'm Maggie Kane. I'm an actress in Chicago, and I went to college with Trey Kay. I haven't seen Maggie in years, but she got in touch on Facebook after she heard the podcast. She said it reminded her of diving into her family genealogy. Her family came from Europe, and she thought that most of them had settled in the North. I learned that my great-great-grandfather moved from Bavaria to Pontotoc, Mississippi. She didn't know much about this grandfather, so she Googled him. And up came his name in a digitized book that was a collection of cases from the Supreme Court of Mississippi in 1851. It seems that another Southern gentleman was suing my great-great-grandfather because the slave he had sold him was defective. This really blew me away. I just, I never, I never even considered that any of my ancestors would have slaves. I was Jewish, and what was a Jewish person doing owning slaves? I mean, every year we have a Seder, and we read about the Exodus, and we talk about how all the Hebrews were enslaved by the Egyptians, and we should never, ever do that again. And here was my great-great-grandfather who had bought, owned, and sold at least one slave. I didn't know what to do with all that. I, I guess I thought my ancestors were, you know, very upstanding, moral people. And here, my great-great-grandfather was doing something that is pretty abhorrent. I tried, to, I tried to rationalize it thinking, well, you know, he was just a businessman trying to make a buck. But he was a businessman trying to make a buck by owning other people. And that's That's not something I'm proud of. I've been proud of a lot of other things in my family, but certainly not that. Maggie's story speaks to what Professor Ad Baptist was getting at in the Dixieland episode. He said that we want to feel proud of our ancestors, but sometimes we have to face some unwelcome truths. Many of the responses we received 
were people trying to better understand how their heritage squares with the legacy of slavery and segregation. There's been a lot of discussion about these questions in the media, too. One of the more creative approaches that I've heard came from my West Virginia public broadcasting colleague, Jessica Lilly. She hosts the program Inside Appalachia. Jessica grew up in Mullins, West Virginia, where the folks were quite proud of their local sports teams, the Mullins Rebels. The mascot for the team was a cartoon drawing of a Southern general decked out in a stylish gray uniform with a wide brim hat, and he's waving the Confederate battle flag. I was a cheerleader, so of course all throughout my years in Mullen's Eye, you were hard-pressed to find someone that didn't have more rebel pride than myself. And I was a cheerleader, and I cheered wholeheartedly for my sports team and, uh, and, and took a lot of pride in that. The, the flag there had more of a, an association with school pride than anything associated with the uh, South or anything like that. Um, and it really wasn't uh, prominent in the community too much. I can remember um, our cheering section and fans having the rebel flag painted on their cheek um, during basketball games or football games to cheer on the rebels. And I saw that as the same as somebody who's cheering for the Panthers would have a paw print on their cheek. When Jessica was a student, she didn't think much about how the flag or other symbols connected to the Confederacy. But now that she's an adult, she started to think about some of her African-American classmates and how they might have felt about being a Mullins rebel and having fans wave the Confederate battle flag at games. Recently, Jessica went back to Mullins to speak with some of the Mullins African-American alums, like Angela Asbury. It didn't really bother me too much. I didn't think much about it. Um, but where it re- when it really hit home and it had me start to thinking about it is when you know I played basketball for Mullins, the Rebels, Rebelettes. And we was in high school. We went to a game. I believe it was in Welch. And I went outside to go get my headphones off the, off the bus. And, you know, a few of the black kids there approached me about it. And, you know, they were teasing me and saying, how could you play ball for a school like that, waving that flag, and it's representing racism and, you know, a bunch of stuff like that. And it didn't click until then. It didn't bother me that they were saying it. It just, you know, it confused me because I never really thought too much about it. Angela Asbury shrugged it off, but... Jessica's cheerleader friend, Nina Tunstall, had a harder time being a rebel. I cheered for the rebels, and I was the loudest cheerleader out there. And, you know, I took pride in my school. But as loud and proud as she was, Nina says that she couldn't get around her feelings about the school's use of the Confederate battle flag. It is a part of history that can't be denied, but that's exactly what it is. It's history. Put it in a museum. Put it in a book. Put it in a case. But it shouldn't be flying. It shouldn't be flying at institutions, public institutions, where little black kids and little white kids walk underneath it. You know, it it just doesn't have a place in today's society. They lost. We don't fly flags of the losers. We fly the flags of the winners. I asked Jessica if her conversations with Nina and Angela and the recent controversy over the symbols of the Confederacy changed her feelings about the flag and, and, and being a Mullins rebel. Well, I can't change my past, and I'm proud to say that I grew up in Mullins, West Virginia. It was a great place to grow up in a great community um, with with lots of love and lots of, uh, you know, and I liked 
having that school spirit. A part of me, I think a part of me will always have a fond sort of nostalgic memory when I see the flag. But it's not as simple as that anymore. It's not as simple as it used to be, certainly. I'm certainly not waving it around because the thought that it would hurt uh, or bring pain to somebody, a friend of mine like Nina, um, you know, makes me, of course, uh, makes me have different feelings about the flag. You can hear Jessica's full conversation with Angela Asbury and Nina Tunstall by searching Inside Appalachia at West Virginia Public Broadcasting's website, wvpublic.org. That's w-v-p-u-b-l-i-c dot o-r-g. You've been listening to Us and Them. Our show was written and produced by me, Trey Kay, and Lori Stern. Catherine Winter edited the program, and it was mixed by Lori Stern and Chris Julian. Michael Lipton and Tristan Lozow wrote and performed our show music. Mark Lerner designed our logo. Rita Krasafi and Mariana Trofimova designed our website at usandthempodcast.com and provide us with images for the web. Our intern is Sophia Tedesco. The wonderful people at West Virginia Public Broadcasting make us and them possible. So do grants from the West Virginia Humanities Council and the CRC Foundation. Thanks to the folks who've liked our Facebook page or tweeted about our show at Us Them Podcast or me at Trey underscore K on Twitter. And you can email me at TK at WVPublic.org. That's T-K-A-Y at W-V-P-U-B-L-I-C dot O-R-G. And please keep those ratings and reviews coming on iTunes. For our next show, the Supreme Court ruled years ago that the state should not promote organized religion in public school classrooms. So this woman wanted to know why it was, back when she was a grade schooler in the 1970s, why it was her classroom got a visit each week from the church lady. They were singing Jesus Loves Me very lustily. All the kids around me knew the words to the song, and I didn't know the words. So I felt very different and very odd, and I felt like everyone was staring at me. Next time on Us and Them.